Hello, I'm Heather Keck. And I'm Andy Keeter. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the 43026 podcast. Our goal is to pro- provide content to inform, promote, and unite our community. This podcast is brought to you from our studios at the Hilliard Chamber of Commerce in wonderful Old Hilliard. The Chamber has a long history of fueling connections, community growth, and helping local businesses thrive. Hello, and welcome to the 43026 Podcast Tuesday edition. How are you doing, Heather? I'm good. How are you today? Good. Who's our guest today? Our guest is a longtime Hilliard resident, and he was one of my very first bosses, and he's a longtime Kiwanis member, and his name is Ted Barrows. Great. We'll be right back with Judge Ted Barrows. Welcome to the 43026 podcast. We're super lucky today and I'm extremely excited because it's literally like one of the first bosses I ever had in my actual career as a prosecutor is here today. He is a longtime Hilliard resident. He's got an amazing history both in Hilliard and what he's done with his career. I'll let him tell you all about that. But one of the main things Andy and I do here at the 43026 podcast is inform, promote, and unite. And in doing so, we are bringing the stories of our neighbors so that you get to know them and you hear their their great backgrounds and their stories. And this is one of those today. And I'd like to introduce you to Ted Barrows. Thank you, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. Retired Judge Ted Barrows. Should I have, do, do I need I'm to? fully and totally and completely retired. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> I can just say Ted. Um, <laughs> hi, Andy. Hi, how you guys doing? Hi, Andy. And Andy's just back from California. How was your flight home? It was, everything worked great, which when flights are all on time, and it seems like a good thing. Yes. That doesn't always happen, but uh, other than I'm still waiting on one piece of luggage that got left in Chicago. Of course. So. That's nice. Um, Ted, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to Hilliard and uh, how long you've been here? Once upon a time, my wife and I were looking for a new home, and we lived in a nice little story and a half building over in Clintonville, um, which was perfect for the two of us. But she wanted something bigger, because she likes stuff. So we were looking for a new house, and they were building new homes in the Hilliard area at the time. Um, And so we... That's one of the places we looked. I can't remember particularly why we focused on Hilliard, uh, but we were very fortunate. Um, We found a model home over in Britain Britain Farms, and as soon as I walked in, I said, I love this place because it's one floor. And I've got this bum knee, and I knew as I got older it was going to give me trouble, and I didn't want to be going up and down stairs two or three times a day if I could avoid it. So I hear that. Got a ranch house built over in Britain Farms, and I think we moved in there. It was like 30, 30 or 31 years ago. Wow. Uh, it's been a while. Um, and we've lived there ever since. When we bought the house, <clears throat> she did most of the decision making. I said there were only three things I wanted, which was a one floor, I wanted a brick front, and I wanted the rear end to face south so I could grow stuff in my, in my yard. And everything else went to her satisfaction. 
I did ask for an extra course of block in the basement so it'd be a little bit taller. It's one extra step going down, so it doesn't stop at 13, it's now 14 steps, which nice. I think is lucky. So it's far that, more lucky than 13. Th that was how we came here. <clears throat> so here I am brand new in a brand new community, um, and it was growing even then, but it's amazing now, but it was growing even then, and I didn't know anybody who lived here. So um, being a politics junkie, I decided to go over to City Hall and watch city council meetings. Um, <laughs> and they were interesting. Roger Reynolds was the mayor. Uh, Chuck Schneider was the city attorney at the time. Retired uh, Judge retired Charles Judge Schneider. Schneider. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, after I'd been there three or four times, and keep in mind now, I'm, I'm convinced that at that time there were seven Democrats in Hilliard, and, and I probably made eight. So I go to City Hall and showing up at City Council meeting Monday after Monday, and finally the, um, the clerk, it was Rhonda Petlow at the time, she came up to me after a meeting, she said, would you be interested in serving on council? And I said, I'm not sure I'm the right stripe <laughs> for this path. For, yeah. And I told her I was a Democrat. She said, oh, okay, all right, see you later. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I met, um, so the Democrats at that time, the few of us that were, were meeting occasionally and we were doing stuff around zoning and, and, and trying to raise issues that would bring some attention to us. And one of those people was Vera Hume, who was also on council at the time. I, you may, I doubt if you remember Vera. No. You may. No. This was a long time ago. So one of the meetings, Vera said, um, you eat pancakes? And I said, yes. And she said, well, here. Here's two tickets to the pancake breakfast. And so she made me buy tickets to the pancake breakfast. So of course I went. And Vera was on the serving line at the pancake breakfast, put on by Kiwanis. And so I said, Vera, what's Kiwanis all about? She said, I'm busy serving. Go over there and sit with that guy, and he'll tell you all about it. Vera sounds like somebody I would like. Just oh, yeah. Some orders, pointing. She was a tough lady. She was a tough lady. Well, the person she pointed out to me was um, Norm McElhenney, who was the coach at a time when Hilliard had one high school. He was the coach. Now, I think he taught... He talked some business courses, but he was known in the community as the coach. We called him coach until the day he passed away. Am I away. assuming coach. this is football? Coach Mack, yeah. Okay. He was yep. my next-door neighbor. Was he really? Absolutely. Oh, and, uh, my goodness. He taught typing classes. He and Joan were just such a pair. They were just great yep. people. Joan Ty is was still, a typing class? Yep. Joan is still my neighbor. Is so. she still painting? Um, not very much anymore. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, anyway, so I sat down with Coach, and uh, I said, Vera sent me over here. And he said something typically grumpy about that. And uh, he, she said that I should ask you about Kiwanis. Oh, and he did exactly what they tell you in the book. He told me a little bit about what they do and where they are. And then he said, I'd like to invite you to come to two or three of our meetings. We'll buy your dinner. And then if you like it, uh, you want to join us, you can do it. So I did that, both those things, and I joined Kiwanis. And it was about 30, uh, 28 years ago, I think now. That's amazing. And uh, Well, here I was, a new kid in town, and all of a sudden when I joined it, the club was bigger then. I had 72 new friends, all of whom were local folks, and many of them had a history. <clears throat> and I learned a lot about the city from getting to know these people. A lot of them were academics. They, they were retired uh, from OSU, instructors from OSU, and retired from local board, uh, Don Parker was uh, one of my chief educators into the ways of Kiwanis when I was there. And uh, so I had a pretty good background. And that's, uh, that was really got me firmly entrenched in the city of Hillary. So that, that was sort of the beginning days. That's awesome. Yeah. So for people that aren't familiar with Kiwanis, uh, what are they about and what's their goals? And Kiwanis is an international organization that's dedicated to improving the world 
one child in one community at a time. And if that sounds like it was rehearsed, it was. That's our, that's our mantra. So it's an interesting, uh, it's a pyramidal structure. The top is Qantas International, who kind of sets the rules and boundaries and organizes international conferences and so on and so forth. And down the level, there are regions, and then beyond that, there are clubs. So all of the clubs fit a basic format as set out by Qantas International, but each of the clubs makes its own policy on what it's going to do for their community with a focus on children. So for instance, our Kiwanis Club here sponsors Key Club at all three of the high schools. Nice. Um, we had one Builders Club. Builders Heart, because it's middle school and rounding up those kids, they're just, that's tough years for kids. And we had two K-Kids clubs at Horizon and, um, shucks, at another, uh, at another elementary school. So young kids who get to meet periodically, elect their own officers, come up with a project, raise a little bit of money, and then do something nice with it. Um, all about service and leadership. So that's, it's about service and it's about leadership. So that's kind of like the rough sketch of Kiwanis. Great, great. Our club here is interesting now. Our signature project now <clears throat> is um, putting together a bag, ba backpack. We call them backpacks. They're actually poly bags, but of food for um, hunger-challenged kids to take home from school on the weekends. So Wednesday night, we and other people from the, from the community who are not necessarily Kiwanians get together and uh, put together 500 of these bags. Then some of us take them around to the schools, depending on how many they need. We don't know the identities of these kids. We rely on the, the uh, administration at each school to know who is food-challenged. And then they pass them out, they give them to the kids to take home with them on Friday, so there'll be some extra food in that house over the weekend. That's um, fantastic. It is a great project. It's a great project. We just had Kim Emsch from um, FESTA. We, we've been on. partners with FESTAs on things, and I think we're going to be working with them to help bring food for the summer camp, or maybe send Excellent. home foods for the summer camp. Yeah. That hasn't solidified yet, but the person in our club, um, Lori Lee, who brought us the backpack project in the first place, is, is kind of organizing how, what we're going to do over the summer. Excellent. Yeah. So, yeah. That's just some great organizations that are really helping out our, our, our hungry oh, yeah. kids. And, and I'm sure you guys are looking for new members, if, if somebody listening is interested. Yes. <clears throat> Anybody that's interested, you can call me on my cell phone, 614-595-1398, and I will answer any of your questions and invite you to attend a, a Kiwanis meeting and learn more about us. This is typical Ted Barrows. He is going, He, I mean, and he wants you to call. But there's probably people in this community that you sentenced to jail, and now they have your cell phone number. Yeah, you know, I don't think most of the people I sentenced to jail are angry. Are listening to our, or are angry, <laughs> or are listening to our podcast. They're probably not listening to uh, A, because I, I didn't send many people to jail, and B, people, people that I sent to jail, like, they worked for it. Yeah, no, that's fair. They worked hard to get themselves in jail, and I felt like rewarding them. We're, well, <laughs> and actually, you in, deserve this. In 18 years, I have gotten three letters from people who said the best thing that ever happened to me was serving six months in that jail. I woke up, I was off drugs, and I owe it to you. Three. That's fantastic. Out of 18, which so, I wouldn't even expect any. So that, oh, was, sure. that was pretty impressive. So before we dive deep in your, in <laughs> right, your right. Before career we get, as a judge. Explain to everyone dive, what I'm that scuba meant. Yeah. We'll get around to scuba. Oh, yeah, you do scuba. Yeah, I'll do you. Yeah. So let's get back to uh, your professional career then. You joined the Army out of high school. I, I read I up on you. That's an interesting story, too. Um, 
I've never been a very good student. I don't study hard. I got by in, in high school with B's and C's, except for the one class that has stood me in good stead for the last 55 years, and that was typing, which I barely passed with a D minus. But still, the keyboard skills are still there. So that's, that's, an, that's kind of a side story. So my desire when I was in high school was to go to the military academy, get an appointment to West Point. And uh, so I interviewed with my local um, U.S. rep, and uh, I got, I got uh, placed on number two. What was that? Number two. Um, so they, they'll, they, they'll appoint, some, or appoint somebody and they'll have alternates, because sometimes the other person would take a different school. Well, that's what happened in my case. So the guy who was the number one guy took a different school, and they called me up and said, you're up. And I was, just, I was high as a kite. And they said, you got to go up to Springfield. I was in Connecticut at the time. That's where okay. I graduated from high school. you got to go up to Springfield, Massachusetts and take the physical fitness test. And I said, the what, the what? <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at a guy who's never been a jock. And no offense to jocks, because I love okay. them all, but never, you know, I, <laughs> I played soccer. I went out for soccer my senior year in, in, uh, in high school just because I wanted to do something physical. So I went up to Springfield and I totally failed the physical fitness test. I couldn't do parallel bars because my little skinny arms had fell off and my dream went right down the tubes. So <laughs> I hadn't applied to any other colleges. It was like laser focus like any 17 year old. This is what sure. I'm going to, this is going to how it's going to happen. This is what my life's going to be. I've got it all planned out like 17 right. year olds do. So that fell out. So um, I had found out that there's a certain number of appointments to West Point from the ranks in the Army every year. So I enlisted in the Army. Had to get Mom and Dad to sign off on it. I don't think either one of them was real happy about it, but I was going to turn 18 in a few weeks anyway. Yeah, so they, they, yeah. <laughs> they were good. They signed off, and um, so I went off to uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey for basic, basic training and uh, advanced infantry training, and then went to jump school in Fort Benning to become a paratrooper Very because cool. my father had been a paratrooper. And somehow the Army knew about that because I requested to be assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, which was the, the unit that he served in during the Second World War, and I got there. Um, so that was, uh, that was the way I got into the service. Three years, one month, and four days later, wiser man, uh, I got out and I had assistance from the United States to go to college. Uh, so I went up to Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, went through on a three-year program by going through summers. Um, Got married, went to Kansas for a couple of years where I worked while my wife did graduate work and found somebody more desirable than me. And so she went to Colorado and I came uh, back here to go to law school. I did not know that story. I can tell these stories now. This has been 50 years and I don't harbor any ill feelings. Everything that has happened in my life to me that felt like a bad thing at a time, like not getting into West Point, sure. turned out to have a silver lining. Absolutely. Like after six months in the service, I said, this is not what I want for my career. <laughs> it's just one of those things. Yeah. So um, law school here, never thinking that I would stay here. I always had in mind that I would go back to Maine and work at Pine Tree Legal Services. By the time I finished law school, all of the friends I had made in Maine in college were scattered to the winds, and I had a new group of friends in the quicksand that is Columbus, Ohio. It sucks For people sure. in. It does. People leave and they get sucked back in. I, I've known a number of people who've left town and then three or four years later they're just back. Come back. And people who come here never intending to leave. It's just one of those places. There's nothing really bad about it. There's nothing really superior about it or there wasn't. Right. Well, those years ago, I think it's getting to be a better city now oh, and, yeah. and the suburbs. So that's, that's how I got into this neck of the woods.
So you went to law school. Well, first off, are you in a Hall of Fame for veterans? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well. He's like, meh. I, it's this is it's the not thing. that great. This is the thing. Um, during my last years on as a judge, I took over the Veterans Court from right. Judge Vanderkar. And I did that for the, you know, the last five We had Judge Vanderkar on here, too. Did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I feel honored to follow him. We did, we did recovery court. I'm sure he was a clown, too, right? No, he wasn't. He was really super, like, serious? straight and serious. So talking about recovery court, it's oh, well, that's, that's a little less stuff. funny. Yeah, That's good stuff. Um, so I did that for five years, and I got to know some people who were, you know, higher up. Uh, uh, Deb Ashenhurst came and spoke at one of our graduations. Um, uh, retired Justice, what's her name? Shucks. This I'm getting old. My memory shut. But a retired okay. retired justice who was all the about the Velvet Hammer. Issues. That one. Who? The Velvet Hammer. Yes. Crap. You're gonna forget her name. Too, I do. Right? I do. That's okay. And she came and spoke. So this I, is good podcast. This is this YouTube. is all. <laughs> good We're chance I'm editing all of this out. <laughs> We're all getting old. We're, nobody's hearing. <laughs> So um, I got to know, kind of peripherally, a number of these people that were higher up in veterans' organizations and veterans' affairs things. And so they invited, I, I was nominated by somebody, actually I was nominated by people that worked with me at the court um, for the Veterans Hall of Fame, and, and I was chosen. And I was humbled because I, when I went there and listened to the stories of all of the other people that were being in, almost every one of them was somebody who had either had uh, combat service or done heroic things, or accomplished huge things, and all I've done in my life is be the beneficiary of good luck who knew how to not mess it up. Which well, that in and of itself is yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, and it's Evelyn Stratton. Evelyn Stratton, that's right. Thank you. You're welcome. It's uh, your memory's but, much younger than mine. But it's pretty special that even though you are a veteran, you got into the Hall of Fame for your service to veterans. Yes. Well, and I think that's pretty neat. I, and I, I think that it, that was the the basis of it, and so I. I feel honored by that, but I also feel um, like I'm not worthy of that. So it's it's kind of a mixed emotion thing. I mean, I, so yeah, you're right about that. So then you did you then start in the public defender's office? Um, when I got out of law school, my first job was working at the Accela Wine Company in the warehouse, loading trucks <laughs> in the evening. Five, Good use of that degree. Six days a week. Um, yeah. Picking bottles and, and cases and loading trucks, um, because once again, I wanted to be a public defender or a legal aid lawyer, and there were no jobs available. And that was, you know, was, even at, a, at the advanced age of 26, it was still like this is the focus, this is what I want. So I didn't apply in law school, didn't apply to any law firms, didn't do, didn't go through any of those things. I just went around and knocked on doors when I had my ticket. Well, there's there nothing going on, so I did that for a while. And then I got hired as a staff attorney with an organization called the Ohio Public Defenders Association, essentially lobbying for smaller county public defenders. Cincinnati, Cleveland, um, and, and Columbus, bigger cities, had big public defender offices, and, and they could come to the statehouse and do stuff. But the smaller ones needed technical assistance, like one guy working part-time for the, you know, in some smaller county. So I did that for about a year and a half. On the board of the Public Defenders Association was Jim Curra, who was the Franklin County Public Defender at the time. And my boss was a lovely woman named Meg Tieford, um, uh, just a great lady. 
and she knew what I wanted to do. And so apparently, I think she put a bug in his ear, and, and I, I did good stuff. I wrote an amicus brief for somebody to went to the Supreme Court. We all got to go and watch the case be argued. That was kind of a, that was a fun thing to do yes. as a brand new lawyer. And so one day, uh, Kura called me up and he said, I understand you'd like to work as a public defender. And I said, yes, sir. And they hired me in 1978. And I think my starting salary was $7,600 a year, uh, which wasn't princely, but it was what I wanted to do. So then I was a public defender for um, two or three years. I went in private practice for a couple of years and went broke. Yeah. And then he... <laughs> you will doing that, yes. This is, this is the rest of that story. So I'm sitting there one day waiting for some client to come in, looking at the stack of bills and my revenues and saying this isn't working out well. It's after two years. I get a phone call. Jim Kerr is on the phone. I understand you're having some difficulties in private practice. Well, yes, sir, that's kind of an understatement. Would you like to come back to the public defender's office? Yep. So nice. it took me, a, took me a little while to shut down the practice and farm out the active cases that I had, but I went back. Um, so once again, the door failure in business, but silver lining was right there. And I used to, I used to, as a public defender in municipal courts, where I grew up in the yeah. Franklin County Municipal Court, I did, I, in private practice, I had a couple of cases in the common police court, but not many. Municipal court was where it was. And I used to try a lot of jury trials. I, I may still hold the record. I did 15 jury trials in one year yeah, when I was a young Yeah, that's a tremendous PD. number. Well, it, you know, they don't try as many cases they do these not. days. Well, there's just too many cases. There's too many cases. And yeah, you're right. And I mean, public, private practice, it doesn't pay to do that. You lose right, money right. no matter how much you charge your client. So it's really kind of sad. Because we should have a system where people can have, have a trial. Have a trial. I 100% agree with that. So for those of us that aren't legal. <laughs> oh, was I using a bunch of shorthand talk? <laughs> no, it's sorry. probably most people probably know this, but the difference between municipal and common oh, police mm, court. Nope, that's a very good question. No, that is a good question. A lot of people do not understand that. Our common police courts are created by the Ohio Constitution. And there's, they are, there is a common police court in each of the 88 counties. They, ha they have jurisdiction over anything. In most of the counties, there is also a municipal court, which is created by the statute, not by the Constitution. And municipal courts are assigned misdemeanor cases, that is, cases that you cannot be sent to the penitentiary for. And civil cases of smaller amounts, I think right now the jurisdictional limit is $15,000. They probably should have raised it years ago. So if you're, in a, if you're involved in a big car wreck and there's hundreds of thousands of dollars, your case is going to be heard in the common pleas court. Um, or but, if you're charged with a felony. And if you're charged with a felony, you're going to be heard in the common police court. So that's, that's where real serious business takes place. And I don't want to denigrate the municipal right. court. Because Not at all. the vast majority of people who have contact with our courts have contact with the municipal court. So it's like um, petty theft or assault or drunk driving. or, or you, any, yeah, mean, any, Traffic, just plain old traffic, traffic cases. All the traffic cases, if, unless you send in your money to pay your ticket, you're going to come down to municipal court for that. So we see a lot more people, um, and it's important not to denigrate the importance of those cases because it's not in the big court. And for most of the people who come to the municipal court, that's the most important thing going on in their life that day, and you have to respect that. You have to make sure that you treat them with the same kind of respect as, or the same kind, and all of the same civil and criminal rights as anyone who would go to the common pleas court. So we do all of that there in municipal court. I love the work. Yeah, and so I. So the day I left, I loved being there. Yeah. And I haven't too. missed it. Oh, well, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> it's great. like, 
I'm at home. It's the right time. Reading books, watching Netflix, gardening more than I have ever. And um, my wife and I have gone out to concerts and, and art museums and stuff like that a whole lot more in the last six months than I did in the last three years. Amazing. Um, just because every day is a Saturday. Yeah, that must be nice. And I can, we can go out and do something on a Wednesday night. I don't have to worry about it. So. <laughs> little jealous, but I'll get there. So you were in the public defender's office for how long? Um, over a seven-year period, I was there for five years. Okay. Maybe maybe five and a half years. And then I know at some point you came over to the prosecutor's office. But that was later. Okay, so um, fill in the rest. Well, when I left when I left the public defender's office, it was go to work for the state attorney general. Um, and here's, there's, here's a story on that. Okay. Um, after being in the public defender's office for all those years, one day I went in representing a person on a license law case. Now, as Heather knows, and the public doesn't necessarily know, about 40% of the cases that we have are people who get caught driving without a license or driving under suspension. It, it boggles the mind at how many people don't have a license in this county. And it's the question is almost more like, who does? Who has a valid license? Interesting. Because there is so, well, now I don't, so is, many That's the cynical point of view. Well, because well, we see a lot of those that people. That is me. <laughs> no, no. We see a lot of those people in the municipal court. But it's important to remember that the people we see in municipal court are the 5 to 8% of miscreants or people who tripped over their shoelaces one day and had and there's some sanction involved with that. These are not these people are not criminal class. Right. Now there's repeat offenders. You know, we see people who I mean, never have gotten a just, license, never will get a license. You can't afford it once the penalties start <laughs> yeah. piling on, getting out hell. from under Absolutely. that. So really anyway, um, one day I came in on one of these cases, and they're, they're pretty simple. They either have a license or they don't, but it's also important that the government has to be able to prove it. So I was prepared prepared to accept kind of some kind of plea agreement, and the judge wasn't in the room, and I was kind of leafing through the prosecutor's paperwork which is open. They have open discovery. And I discovered a defense You're like, that I should have seen no. at the pretrial, that I should have seen the first time I went there. There's no BMV printout? Um, notice. Oh. There was no proof of notice. It was some kind of, it wasn't See, a... See, that's was some like the of, most basic thing that lawyers would totally forget to even look at. Yep. So that day I went back and I said, you know what, I must be getting stale at this. Everybody's entitled to the best representation they can get. And fortunately I found that at the last minute because I was prepared to have that guy plead guilty, to pay a fine, and to have something on his record. And it wasn't there. And it wasn't there at the pretrial too, and I missed it. I said, it's time for me to do something else because I'm getting stale. So I got a job at the Attorney General's office in the Consumer Protection section. So once again, representing people. Yeah. Uh, that was a whole interesting thing. I did that for eight, eight or eight, nine, eight or nine years. I remember after eight years thinking, I've never had a job this long. There must be something wrong. It's probably time to move. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and consumer protection, give us an example of like what kind of work you did. Well, what kind of work I did, the lawyers did, was there's a whole statute, the Consumer Sales Practices Act, and there are rules that were promulgated under the authority of the Consumer Sales Practices Act and approved by JCAR. Okay, so these rules can, can did things like if you're going to do an automobile repair, you have to give people an estimate or a choice to decline an estimate, and the estimate has to be in writing, and there's a number of things. Nobody was doing that stuff. Sure. So we, we sent out half a dozen investigators to go around and stop at these shops, and the ones that came back and said they didn't give me anything or here's what they gave me and it doesn't comply, then we would send them a cease and desist notice. 
or we would send them a complaint that was filed in the Common Police Court and an offer of settlement. So they would pay $1,500 as a civil settlement and agree to, and agree to fix their to form fix to the settle. That was the petty stuff. Uh, we sued uh, Spitzer. Yeah. Spitzer had dealerships all over the, yeah. I don't know if they still do, but um, <laughs> they were doing dealer prep. Oh. It was pre-printed on the form, and I think it was $75. And inter we found this out. Internally, they referred to that as Dell Spitzer's Retirement Fund. Nice. Because the accountants, Excellent. you know, I'll, I'll, I can tell you a little See, bit about it. This is why we need people Absolutely. like, you know, a Ted Barrow the auto, out there and The auto sales business. You're getting screwed, people. This is... <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, and it was pre-printed on the form. So you'd negotiate for the price of the car, you know, blah, 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 blah. You, what do you want on it? You want rust proofing, blah, blah, blah. And then they get down and just add it up and they'd throw this $25 in there. And that would be in the bottom line price. Well, most people, it's like, it's pre-printed on a form. They're going to think twice about yep. it. There was no service being, there was no, if you're going to, it's part of your cost to prepare that car to get the manufacturer's wrapping off of it. Right. What else is done for dealer prep? Right. Make sure there's oil in the engine. Sure. Gas. Yeah. And all the kind of things that you, you would have to do to sell a car anyway, it's a cost of doing business. Well, they were adding this thing on. And as I said, I, I, I didn't see the paperwork, but I'm guessing that, that that $25 on every contract went somewhere else and was for some, you know. So we took them on and we ended up getting $25 back or whatever it was, $50 back for a huge number of people that they paid. It took a long time. I had to look at a lot of car contracts. I had to negotiate with a very nice guy who was representing them. His name was uh, Tony Giardino and he's was, he was a good lawyer, nice man, but he was tough, a tough negotiator and I was so tired of this case when we were done. So anyway, that was, that was the kind of thing we did, from the small okay. stuff to the big stuff. And I was on the car side. There were also people on the non-car side who would take on door-to-door uh, -door people who would say, I'll come and fix your driveway, I'll reseal your driveway, give me $1,000 down and pay me the rest when I'm going, take the $1,000 And then they and disappear. disappear, yeah. Uh, tornado roof follows, storm, guys, yeah. storm followers. Storm we had, guys. We had a whole protocol. Whenever there was a, a storm or a major uh, natural disaster, we would send a whole team of people there, including half a dozen investigators down to kind of walk around and see who was doing work and check and make sure they were licensed and try to keep them from hurting people. Great. It was good work. It was good yeah. work. Absolutely. I worked under uh, three different attorneys general while I was there. Tony Celebrezzi was yeah. the AG yeah. when I got there. Lee Fisher took over for and <laughs> by 1,234 votes and then wow. uh, Betty Montgomery for a while before. I, I, I left um, before her, term was, her first term was over. They were all nice folks. Um, I think they all were there to serve the people. Yeah. And then you went where? Uh, then I went to, yeah, <laughs> um, the city attorney's office changed hands. Janet Jackson, Janet Jackson was appointed to be the city attorney. And Ron O'Brien became county prosecutor. Exactly. Janet Jackson became city attorney. That's right. I actually worked for Ron O'Brien. When he was city then. attorney you, or when attorney he was county? Oh. Yeah, what'd you do? I, I did, uh, I did, it was mostly housing social work, but I did relocation assistance. It was okay. my first job out of college. And I, I'd help people that were told houses need to vacate because of code enforcement. Mm. Okay. And uh, you were talking about knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. We used to have city attorney's office on our business card, and I made them take it off because nobody would open the door. Sure. <laughs> so, you're like, I'm really out. trying to help you, and you're yeah. like, they're like, no, I'm not falling for that. You've got a warrant thing. I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Right. Right. <laughs> 
So um, Janet Jackson took over and she let it be known that she wanted to hire a new chief prosecutor. And so um, I threw my hat in the ring. I sent a resume and said I'd be interested in serving uh, as the chief prosecutor. I've got experience both in prosecution and defense. Um, no, I didn't, have, I didn't have any experience in prosecution. Yeah, but you were at the I AG's office. Yeah. Well, that, that helped out later yeah, on. When I ran for sure. judge, that helped out. Oh, yeah. So um, I went and interviewed. Tony Celebrezzi was on the interview panel, right. and uh, Dave Leland and somebody else, I think. I can't remember who all was on it. I talked to them for a while. Didn't get a good feeling when I left. Um, and they, they offered a job to Steve McIntosh, who's now a common police court. Judge Steve McIntosh. Judge McIntosh, one of the finest men I've ever known. I about. agree. Just class A guy all the way around. And Gold so, as deep as you can scratch. <laughs> I, so I kind of soaked that up and said, well, it's, that's probably a good choice. And so uh, because Steve had been a prosecutor and I had had cases with him and he was always very even keel. Yeah. I never saw him get upset. He, you know, he represented the government well. He never got personal about stuff. He tried cases reasonably well. And I had, been, I had always been an adversary advocate. So I thought, that's probably a better choice for this. So about a week and a half later, I get a call at home from Janet Jackson, who said, do you still want to work for me? And I said, well, what you have in mind? She said, I'm an assistant chief prosecutor. And I said, well, I'll have to talk it over with my wife, but she says yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, what a great duo, oh, honestly. That was so much fun. We had, we had a great crew years. of kids, youngsters, kids. Most of them were young. I was pretty young. Yeah. Well, most of that crew was young people, yeah. relative to me. No, for sure. Um, so, it was great. It was a good team. It was a really, really good. I loved every minute working with Mac, and uh, he's still doing a great job. I think he's. I think he is the uh, administrative judge over at the Common Police Court still. Yeah. So then, so then we're hitting about. That was ninety-seven. Yep. Two thousand three. You run for judge. Correct. And you won. Against the odds. Against it, the odds. It, it kind of was. Well, at the time, unlike now in Franklin County, at the time, the uh, Republican Party was much stronger than the Democratic Party. Judicial races are nonpartisan. So it wasn't going to say D or, or R on the ballot. So I get, there's a little bit of a benefit going in. But the Republicans won race after race in the, in the courts. And you're running against a woman. And I a did. woman well, will have a bump in a judicial race. Yep. Um, the exceptions were, I think the Democrat judges on municipal court at that time were Ann Taylor and Janet Grubb. Right. And there may have been a third person, but I can't even remember now. So um, I threw my hat in the ring. Um, uh, one of my good friends, whose name I'll leave off this broadcast, uh, had been in party politics for a long time. Um, my, my newly minted campaign coordinator, who had never been involved in a, in a political campaign before in her life, and I went out to visit this woman one night. I think, I think all three of us have been there before. Jesse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesse was Jesse, there. yeah, I know. Yeah. I knew who it was. Uh, I remember. <laughs> so we went out to visit this woman one night, and we're d discussing our campaign and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And, and she started saying, she's saying something about, well, somebody else's candidacy, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, what are they saying about me over at party headquarters? And she looked me in the eye because she's always straight. She said, they say you don't have a snowflakes chance. And she and I till that, still tell that story. Today. Yeah, no, for real. I, so the benefit was I had was crazy. I had a crew of people who were good friends. None of I had more political experience on campaigning than any of them did, but they worked their they worked their asses hearts. Off. 
Yeah. Hearts out. Worked their hearts out. How about you? <laughs> you can edit that. <laughs> they worked their hearts out for me. I had um, an opponent who was a woman that I've known for years. She was a prosecutor when I was a public defender. I liked her. She yeah. was also a person with very level-headed, yeah. tried to do the right thing. She was just good folks. But she did not like campaigning. And it showed. I mean, I... I well, and luckily she ended up getting appointed later because yeah. she's well, a very good judge. Well, I did everything. And a Hilliard resident also. Well, both Heather and I have run local campaigns, yeah. but I worked on some of my mom's countywide campaigns, and it's not even close to the no. same no, thing. It's, this it's, is a big, big county. county it's <laughs> huge. And, I, and really, how many votes do you have to get to win a, count, like a county judicial? I mean, it's like 100,000, right? You know, I'm so, trying to remember. I don't it's remember. Well, uh, well over 80,000 to yeah, win I a judicial say, race. It's, it's probably less than 100,000 because there's a lot of drop-off when you get to yeah. judicial races. But I would see 80 or, 80 or 90,000. Yeah, it, it's a, that's a lot of people to get out and vote for you. I went to every parade. That I could go to. I went he, to he rode the bus line. I went to parish festivals, and while people were sitting under the tent eating, I would walk up and say, Hi, I'm Ted Barrows, I'm running for judge, and shake their hand. And I was amazed that they would never get pissed off. So, oh, really? Okay. Oh, look at the card, the OSU schedule on the back, my name yeah. on the front. Uh, shook every hand I could find and rode the buses, which mm -hmm. you can't do anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, Coda put it in a rule. Oh, okay. My mom used to ride the buses. We used to do bowling alleys late in the campaign. We'd get a whole bunch of pencils. And we'd go, and you could hit bowling alleys like five in the night, and you'd do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and hit all the leagues. Yep. And it was crazy. Yep. <laughs> I, did, I, I only did a couple too. of bowling alleys, and I'm not sure why that was, but um, it was. I had a, a campaign volunteer who would meet me downtown at 5 o'clock in the morning in the parking garage. And drive. I parked my car. He would drive me out to the start, the, the starting point of one of the lines that coming yeah. into Columbus. I'd get on the bus there, talk to everybody on it, get off at the first stop. When the next bus came along, I'd get on it, talk to everybody on it, and and, and kind of hopscotched all the way down to town in time to make it to work. Wow. That's <laughs> crazy. That is crazy. But that's the kind of effort it takes if you want to follow your dream. Let's maybe. go back to sitting on the bench. Uh, okay. Tell us some stories or experiences or what it was like then to be a judge. It's an interesting gig. And different judges have different approaches to how they're going to do things. I mean, there are some people on that bench now, and there always have been, who have really big personalities, and I would say fairly big egos. Well, you got to have a pretty good ego to run for that job. I'm not, right. I don't, I'm not setting myself apart in that set. But it, once you get there, it's how there's a whole difference in how you conduct yourself. And most of the time, uh, most of us are looking for the same thing, which is, a reasonable outcome that's going to serve the community and perhaps serve this individual defendant by leading them in a different path or persuading them that there's a better way to do things. Uh, and so there's sticks and carrots and everything like that. Um, and I, I prided myself on the fact that I tried very hard to see each person not as a case but as an individual person who like I said, tripped over their shoelaces one day and got caught and whatever, and here they are. And, and it's good to remember that you cannot judge somebody's life by the worst day in it. And the day they're coming in front of me with their deer in the headlights with their eyes this big and just nodding their head and answering yes every time I answer a question, I know they're not really there. They're somewhere in, in the bowels of fear and, they, and, and uncertainty. And that's just a horrible place to be. I try to keep things cooler. I try to 
throw a little humor in if I could. I tried to be as relaxed myself and convey that because it's got to be hard. The other thing to remember is nobody in that courtroom wants to be there except the people that are paid to be there, the lawyers and the judges and the court staff. And Everybody then, else is there be because fair. they got subpoenaed as a witness or they're a defendant or their son is a defendant. They don't want to be there. They'd right. really rather be somewhere else. And you have to be conscious of that too. Try to make people be as comfortable as they can. So those are the kind of things that I looked for. And in terms of justice, um, it didn't take, I mean, as a public defender, with a history as a public defender as well as a prosecutor, but mostly as a PD, it's like sending people to jail doesn't cure their problem. It may make their block safer if they're an idiot and they cause trouble in their neighborhood for a while, but they're going to be back. You know, and so I, I think I tended to use probation more than most other judges because I wanted them to be under my thumb, but I also wanted them to have an opportunity to take advantage of ways and resources that could maybe make their lives a little bit better when they came to the end of it. And I never did a statistical analysis to figure out how that did. Somebody should. So that's, that was kind of my approach. Which, And then I will tell you this. As good a job as I thought I was doing, it wasn't until I took over the Veterans Court that I realized it wasn't even half of what was needed. Because the, the model for the Veterans Court is that, first of all, it's voluntary. A person is charged with an offense, and if they have a military background, they have the opportunity to request transfer to the Veterans Court document. The first thing they have to do is they have to show up every Monday afternoon, every Monday afternoon for the first six or eight weeks. It's up close and personal. And then, so they'll have to, they have to stand up in front of me, the power authority, or from that perspective, the CO, you know, and there's yep. some private, and here's the CO, wants to know what you've been doing this week. And I already know what they've been doing this week because the, the agencies that we work with would give us reports ahead of time. So when I'm asking this loaded question, and if they say something that's not, that's not true, I, can't, I bust them right away. That's not so. I know for a fact that blah, blah, blah. It's like, <clears throat> and you get, you get their attention, they understand, and then I'm on first names with them. So they know, I know them, I know what they're doing, I care about what they're doing, and it's amazing. That's why, that's the magic. When our, the stuff that I read says that the one-on-one -on -one with the authority figure, the regular one-on-one -on -one with the authority figure, so they now no longer fear you, but they respect you and they want to please you, is what drives most of the people who succeed to actually succeed. That's the, that's the secret sauce. But along the way, I also, I think I, I think I, stepped up how I treated people in the regular courtroom too as a result of that. It's like, if it takes longer to get through this, I'm going to look, it's not a standard series of questions, you understand this, you understand that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, what's your family like? What, what do you do? You work, you're working? What kind of work do you do? Well, you got a pretty good education, you think you could do better? It's just a conversation so they know I talking, to, I'm a real person and I'm talking to a real person. And I started doing a whole lot more of that during the last few years That's as great. a result of what I learned from Veterans Court. So we're never too old to continue learning new ways to do better stuff. That's great. <laughs> That's great. No, that's exactly it. I think we're, none of us are ever too old to learn how to talk to people better and make them feel more comfortable and learn more mm -hmm. about them. I, I want to kind of hit back on your Hilliard service. I, it sounds like you've had a lot of years, 25 years in Kiwanis, but aren't you on the food pantry board or were you on the food I was. I, did, I, I got on the food pantry board a couple of years ago. Um, it was right before they rolled into the pandemic. And I, I don't know all the details, but the board was in trouble. There was internal fighting and there was threats and you know stuff like this. And so um, I forget, somebody reached out 
and uh, said we need a judge. Yeah, we need a mediator instead <laughs> well, of a board member. I, that. I, I, I can't remember what it was, but I, I got interested and said, and I, so I just dropped in and said, can I help? You want to be on the board? Yes, I'll, I'll be on the board. So I got on the board, and it was when we transitioned from the little cubby hole over here behind the theater uh, over into the new place. I was on the board during that period of transition. I was still working full time. I wasn't volunteering at the pantry because, except on Saturdays, I didn't have any, you know, I wasn't able to get there while they're open and stuff like that. So I was on the board. I was involved with some of the fundraising stuff that they did in order to be able to finance that move. Um, but I felt like I really wasn't contributing as much as I should. So after a couple of years, I, I, I told them that. I said, I, I'm not contributing what a board member should be able to contribute, and I really think that you need somebody else who can do that to be on this board, and so I stepped away from it. Um, so I, I send them money now occasionally, but uh, I'm not actively involved right now. I think it's a great operation. They've been through a lot of changes. They went through right. a lot of changes. Moving was very painful. Um, there, there was some circulation on the board. Uh, people who got disgruntled and left and stuff like that. I didn't leave because I was disgruntled. I, but, but, so it was, it was a painful process, but I think they're really going gangbusters over there. It's a nice operation. Um, I'd like to see them have the, 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 the wherewithal to be open more, more often, more a number of hours. Right. One of the things that they hadn't gotten to by the time I left that their long-term planning was to offer services beyond food. In other words, maybe right. income tax like, assistance or clothing yep. stuff, and have have those kinds of other ancillary services. I think they're having cooking classes now too. And that's stuff great. Like that. So yeah, so they're, I'm sure I'm sure they're moving along and they're they're uh, you know expanding their services as they go. A little known thing is they also have um, they have help for utilities. Mm -hmm. Once a year, they can they can defray your utility bill if you really get behind. So it's it's kind of a gem. Yeah. I'm glad they got a location where their sign could be out on Cemetery Road and people could see it and find it easier. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Mm -hmm. And what else? Senior Citizens Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're I've, famous. I've been on the Senior Hall of Fame now probably I don't know, 12 years. I don't know. It's been a, lo it's been a while. And then the faces come and go. Faces come and go. But the essential thing is... Each year, we try to honor a senior citizen of Hilliard, or the Hilliard area, who personifies good senior living, solid senior living. Um, and so we, we hope for nominations from the, from the universe. Sometimes we get a stack of them, sometimes we don't get, we don't get any. Oh. And we also are set up to, to honor somebody who's deceased, who also represented quality, uh, being a senior citizen, giving back. So we're looking for people, and it can't just be that you were a beloved teacher for 30 years. You have to be a retired beloved teacher for 30 years who continued to contribute, who's active, who engages in all kinds of activities, and is still giving to the community in your retirement. That's really the kind of global thing that we're looking for. So. Um, I think this will be my last term with them, too, because once again, bringing new people along is a good thing. But by and large, my, my uh, external work in Hilliard has been related to Kiwanis because I've been working. Until yeah. December 30th, I was downtown five days a week, and getting back here to do stuff was difficult. So because I have the time available, the, each of the key clubs has a Kiwanis member as their advisor. And the one that was advising Davidson was a dear friend, but she's getting on in years, and she was just failing like she couldn't handle it anymore. So I've stepped into that and become the uh, key club advisor for Davidson High School. Oh, great. Thank yeah, you for good that. Stuff. Good stuff. Um, 
We have amazing students here. It's oh, this what school unreal. is so blessed. It is. It is so blessed. He had the um, there's a there's a command structure in Key Club the same as there is in Kiwanis. So you have each club, and then there's a lieutenant governor who kind of oversees a few clubs, and then there's the district governor who oversees lieutenant governors. So the lieutenant governors from Division Ten have come out of the Hilliard schools four times in the last 10 years. Wow. And there's like, I think there's 14 key clubs. Yeah. So, you know, we got, we got great kids, we've had good support from our club, and um, it's just, it's been, it's a blessing. It really is a blessing. It's great. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, you're a great neighbor. You're obviously a very involved um, Hilliard resident. Oh. Well, thank you so much no, for the invitation. Thanks for it's been being here. Um, it's exciting to have you, obviously, for me, too. So I'm glad I got to see you. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. This was, thank you. Okay. So, good story. And that's what people need to hear, that we have <coughs> such a great gem in Hilliard. Well, this, is, this was a good time. It was fun. Entertaining, too. <laughs>